Nobody in my family is a Christian. I'm sorry about that. Have you tried talking to them? Yeah, I was going to tell my sister about Jesus one time, and she was downstairs using the computer. So I went down and I was going to tell her about Jesus, but all that came out was, can I use the computer? I have a Bible verse about that. Would you like me to go get it? Yeah, that'd be a great help. Adrian! Did you hear that Kevin just wrecked his brand new Honda? No Oh man, he had it coming. I knew this was gonna happen. He so deserved it. He is a terrible driver. He is awful. I think it's a bunch of when he bought that car. All he did was talk about that car all the time. It was ridiculous. I'm glad. I hear you on that one, uh huh? Well anyway, I have that Bible verse for you. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Okay. Amen. Hey, turn in your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 1, obviously. I'm thinking a good place to start would be verse 1. That's right, Mickey. Verse 1 uh, is very logical, very straightforward uh, as we, we go there. And uh, I'm going to read to you the verse uh, out of the translation. Uh, then I'm going to read to you the expanded Greek translation uh, after that, just so you can kind of get a flavor. Because, man, I tell you what, just one Greek word radically can change uh, what's going on there. Not that it's translated wrong per se, but man, it just doesn't always give you the full flavor of what's going on. But let's take a look at verse one, and here's what uh, the Bible says. James, he is a what? He is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation's greetings, okay? Now, here's what the expanded Greek actually says. James, a bond slave of God, we'll get to that in a little bit, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes, those in dispersion. Okay, this uh, first one obviously is more, if you will, of an introductory uh, issue uh, going on with the book of James. I want to give you a little bit of background of who he is, why he wrote this, and the timing. And Lord willing, once we get to the timing, that's pretty amazing because that's where I think you get into the purpose of the book. And, and then once you get the purpose, now when, as you get that reading the rest of the way through, mind-blowing, okay? Give you a little bit of teasers. The, uh, James, okay, actually is what we have as the title of this book, okay? But James is actually the Greek word iakabos, let's say that. Iacobos, okay, and that's actually uh, the word Jacob. So in case you're ever on uh, Jeopardy uh, and uh, you really need to get that double daily column there, especially if it's a $1,000 one apparently, uh, then you say, no, actually the book of James should be entitled the book of Jacob because that's really what his name was. It's Iacobos, okay? The reason why we got that is because the transliteration from the original Greek into eventually the English, uh, it went from uh, uh, Iacobos to Iacomas, which is where we get James, believe it or not, and that's how it ended up. So anyway, a little teaser there, just a little teaser. James is actually the book of Jacob, okay? And so the question though is, okay, that's neat that we, we got that correct answer on Jeopardy. Let's get down to the purpose of what's going on. Who is this James guy, right? Okay, who is this James or Jacob, literally, in the Bible? Well, when you study the scripture, you have uh, basically four options that people uh, could say that this could be, 
Most of them clearly agree who it is, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but biblically, you got, it could be James, the son of Alphaeus, okay, that's mentioned in the scripture, one of the 12. Uh, there's another James, he was the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, okay, but another apostle, if you recall, who was named Judas, okay, common name of the day. Uh, James, the son of Zebedee, this is the uh, brother of the apostle John, okay, huh? or some would say this is speaking clearly of James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, why is it important to note the distinction there that he would be the half-brother of Jesus? Yeah, and we'll get to that now. I think that uh, plays into his uh, 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 reason why he was a leader in the early church. He was a humble man, uh, and he didn't boast about that. We'll get that in a second. But, but the half-brother issue is very important because of the virgin birth, okay? Uh, these, uh, uh, as we're going to see, uh, Jesus' uh, brothers and sisters, believe it or not, uh, uh, obviously were born after Jesus was born of the virgin birth issue, and so there are four half-brothers, okay? Uh, and so you need to retain that issue with the virgin birth. All right, now, most people say the first two James are obviously obscure. Uh, there's no reason to uh, uh, say that this letter came from them. Uh, James, the brother of John, we know was killed in Acts chapter 12. And if you look at the timing aspect there, uh, you're gonna see that this was before the book was written. So it could not have been him. So most people clearly say that this James or Jacob is clearly speaking of the James who is the half-brother of of Jesus, okay? So that's the who factor. We got the little jeopardy factor out of the way. It's really Jacob, whatever. Okay, we'll still stick with James, okay? Uh, but the who factor, uh, that's been answered. This is who wrote this book. This is the guy who was there with Jesus growing up the half-brother of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, again, just to dispel that, I remember uh, when I was in Bible college, this guy was just blown away saying, absolutely not, Jesus didn't have any other brothers and sisters. I'm going, what? You might want to read your Bible, and let's do that. Open your Bibles to Matthew 13, okay? That uh, James, uh, Jacobus, uh, Jacob literally, was Jesus' uh, half-brother, okay? But uh, let's go to one passage, Matthew 13, clearly saying that. And again, as we're going to see, it wasn't just that he had some bros, he had some sisters too, okay? And they're all half-brothers, half-sisters, okay? Again, paying attention to the virgin birth. Matthew 13 and uh, verse 53, let's take a look there. Verse 53 uh, is what we're going to talk about. And he's talking about the prophet uh, without honor. He goes back to his uh, hometown, right? The people who, including James, Jacobus, who saw him grow up and listened to the response there. Verse 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, uh, coming to his hometown. And he began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. And then all of a sudden they said, wait a second, prone translation there. Uh, where, where did this guy get all this, uh, uh, this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. And wait a second, hey, wait, we know you, dude. Isn't this the carpenter's uh, son? Isn't his uh, mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers, who's the first guy mentioned there? James, okay. James, and he also had Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Again, that's a common name of the day. Not always speaking of Judas Iscariot. But listen, he says, aren't all his what? Sisters with us. Where then did this man get all these things? And they what? They took offense at him. Can you believe that? Okay, but Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and his own house is a prophet without honor. And because of that, he didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Let me give you another one. This is clearly speaking of James, Galatians. Flip over to Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one. Galatians chapter one, verse 19 and uh, Paul talks about this, and he's talking about 
uh, when he went to Jerusalem after Paul got radically saved, obviously. And who does he confront there in Jerusalem? Okay. He says this, he says, uh, actually verse 18 says, then after three years after Paul got saved, he said, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only who? James, and who is he? The Lord's brother, okay? And we can go on and on. Uh, in fact, while we're at it, flip over to, uh, take a left to 1 Corinthians 15, and we're gonna see that uh, Jesus specifically appeared to this one half-brother of his that's recorded for us anyway, uh, James as well, okay? 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, let's take a look there. And uh, here's what he says there. And uh, let's start with verse three. Paul says, for what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then the 12, and then after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. In other words, you want to go check it out, go for it. They're still around. Although some have fallen asleep or in other words have died. Then he appeared to who? To James. And then to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me also, but as one, if you will, abnormally born is what he says there. So again, so most people see that this is clearly, who is this James? Who is this Jacobus? Uh, this is clearly speaking of the Lord's brother, his half-brother, James, okay? So that's the who factor. And uh, so now let's move on to the what factor. What do we know about this guy? Obviously, he was the half-brother of Jesus, but what else do we know about him? Well, the Bible's very clear. We just saw some of those passages uh, that the Bible would say that uh, James was a very, very important, not just a leader, a very important leader uh, in the early church. Now, we already saw that he was personally visited by Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Acts chapter 15, it talks about how he was uh, uh, in this important position in the early church because he was there at the uh, church council when they were trying to deal with the Gentile situation. But we also see in Acts chapter 1, it's also recorded that he was there as well. Okay, so the Bible says that this guy was a very important early church leader. Okay, the second thing we see, not just from the Bible, we see from church history. Church history records that this guy, man, he was a godly uh, man, okay, a godly man. Let me read to you the account, okay, of who this guy was. Now, one of your first clues, and this is kind of cool, I thought about this when I was doing my notes. One of your first clues that James was really, truly a godly man, okay, which I think adds to why he was a leader in the church, an important leader, and given that uh, position, uh, is his nickname in church history is James the Just. And I got to thinking about this. Said, man, wouldn't it be, I mean, man, you could go to town on this one. Uh, if God right now, as us here, as Christians here today, if he were to give us right now a nickname, what would it be on our walk with Jesus Christ right now? Isn't that convicting? Right? Right? And so, I mean, it's wild. I mean, you can just stop and ponder, but we need to move on. I, got, I want to try to at least make it through verse one today, okay? But isn't that wild? And so here, this guy, he ended up with a nickname that lasted throughout church history. It's recorded for us. This guy, he was a just man. Wow. Now listen to this. This is what happened to him. He met his death uh, after the uh, procurator, uh, procurator Portius Festus uh, and it, uh, before uh, another guy, Lucius Albinius, took office about AD 62, the high priest took advantage of this lack of imperial oversight to assemble a Sanhedrin council uh, who condemned James on the charge of breaking the law, right? So they go about to set the guy up. The scribes and the Pharisees came to James for help. We need your help. 
in putting down these Christian beliefs. They said, we implore you to restrain the people for they have gone astray in their opinions about Jesus as if he were the Christ. Persuade all who have come to Passover concerning Jesus. For we know they'll listen because he was obviously very popular with the people. Even the non-Christians will see uh, clearly said this is a just man. This is a godly man. So people listen to James, okay? And so it says, uh, so uh, uh, they'll listen to your persuasion since we as well as all the people bear testimony that you are just and you show partiality to no one. So here's what they had him do. Take your stand then upon the summit of the temple. Well, why would they put him way up top there? They said, uh, from that elevated spot, people can clearly see you and your words can clearly be heard by all the people. So they basically came to him and basically says, we're going to give you this uh, position up here where everybody gathered around Passover, all these crowds, and then everybody can hear you with the, the, the acoustics there. And they can, everybody can see you. You're above the crowd, you know. And uh, we want you to basically say this Jesus stuff, he's not the Christ, right? So that was their, what they're doing. To the scribes and Pharisees' dismay, <laughs> James boldly testified uh, that Christ, Jesus, himself sits in heaven at the right hand of God and shall come on the clouds of heaven. So he, and, ooh, it's cool. Isn't it cool how they, they meant for evil? God says, watch this, I'm gonna give you a platform to proclaim uh, the truth. Anyway, so the scribes and Pharisees then said to themselves, we have not done well in procuring uh, this testimony of Jesus. In other words, oops, backfire. Uh, but let us go up and throw him down that they, the crowd, may be afraid and not believe him. So they threw James down and began to stone him, okay, because he was not killed by the fall. So here he was up there at the temple, fell down, he wasn't killed, and so now they go about to stone him. But James then turned, kneeled down, and said, I beseech you, Lord God, our Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I wonder where that was heard before. By his, by Jesus, right? And uh, while they were stoning him to death, one of the priests actually began to cry aloud saying, stop, what are you doing? This just man is praying for us, okay? But one among them, one of the folders, okay, took the staff with which he was accustomed to wring out the garments that he died. So he's, he used a club to beat the clothes and the dye stuff and whatever. Uh, he, he threw it at James uh, in his head and killed him. So he got clubbed to death in the end after being chucked off the temple, still survived, trying to stone him to death, and then got hit in the head with a club. That's how he went with the Lord, okay? So what do we see by this? Well, you've got to grab the context of what's going on with this book so we can gather why did he write this? What about the man? We already saw uh, who he is, okay? What do we know about him? Uh, the Bible says he's an important church leader. That's clear. Church history obviously says he was a just man. But I believe the text, the next thing that we have, the text says that this guy, he was a humble man. Okay, and that's where now we're finally getting into our verse. It says here, James. But what does he say after he says who he is? He says specifically, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay? Uh, it, it's a cool word. Uh, if you've ever done a study on, on what this is, it's doulos in the Greek, okay? And it literally means bond slave, okay? I, I, I like to translate this every time I get this in the English, because we, we, we don't like that the slave is not a, a, a politically correct term. And I'm not, a, you know, saying, condoning slavery. I'm not saying that. But if you want to understand more of what the emphasis of his statement right here is, it's not servant doesn't cut it. You need to go back to this issue of slave. And this is who James considers himself to be. A bond slave, the word doulos, because there's different words for this issue. A diakonos is another one. A diakonos where we get the word deacon. That means servant. It means like a waiter. But the one that he uses here is a doulos. It's a different word. 
okay? And this is used to somebody who was in permanent bondage. Permanent bondage from which there is no release from except for death. So that's the word that he uses right out of the gates to describe himself. Well, why, why is that? Because think of what he could have said. And I think this reveals his character. He doesn't say, hey guys, here I am writing a letter to the church. You know me, I'm the brother of Jesus, right? You know what I'm saying? I, I, did, did I tell you, John? Hey, I, I, I saw this guy grow up with my own eyes. I saw him, I mean, I was there. I mean, you weren't too bad, but I was. I grew up with him, man, you know what I'm saying? I mean, me and him, we're like this, you know, we're real tight, you know what I'm saying? Can you imagine how he could have introduced himself and completely legit and used it towards his vanity? And this is what is amazing. That's not what we see with James. And that's why I say the text says, church history says, uh, the Bible says he's an important church leader. He's a godly leader. But I think the text right out of the gates, it says, man, this guy was humble. You know, because how many people would have taken advantage of that and says, oh, by the way, I, grew, I, I didn't just see him with my eyes. I mean, even before all that, the crucifixion and the resurrection. And I did, and he did get visited by Jesus personally. Later, as we just saw 1 Corinthians 15. But I grew up with him. Wow, he could have used that, but he doesn't. And so I see that this is clearly that he is a, uh, a godly man. And this is what is very characteristic uh, of, you see, of other godly people mentioned in Scripture, okay? Uh, in the Old Testament, Moses was called the doulos, okay, of God. Daniel was called the doulos of God. Jacob and Caleb, the doulos of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so was Job, so was Isaiah, and many other prophets. And so when James calls himself doulos, he's identifying himself, listen, with many honored men who were the servants of God. He says nothing about his human relationship to Jesus, only that his spiritual service is rendered unto him. Always as a bond slave. And there's no release from it. That's what he says there. So it's really neat. So, so this guy, he's a high position in the church. He's a humble guy. He's not proud. He was a slave to Jesus like any other Christian. Now we could go to town on that one too. Not only what would your nickname be and my nickname be if church history were to slap one on us right now. But is this our mentality when it comes to Jesus? Are we a bomb slave? I just exist to serve him, man. That's it. That's it. I'm here for him. Okay, that's what he says. Uh, James, he alludes to this. And I think he says this is an important characteristic. And again, I don't think it's by chance he gets into early church leadership with this authority because he later says in James chapter four, I'll just read it for you, verse six through seven. Now you know his character. We're just getting into the book. Now listen to what he says four chapters later. He said, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves then to God. That's what he's doing. I submit. This is, yeah, I may have grown up with him. I saw him with my own eyes. I'm his actual half brother, but I've submitted myself to God. And then of course he says, resist the devil and then he will flee from you. Why? Because pride, James clearly says, is antithetical to receiving the grace of God. Why is that important? Because it is the grace of God that empowers you to do what God has called you to do that bears fruit for him. Jesus said, I don't want you to just bear fruit. I want you to bear much fruit. But the fruit is a work of the Holy Spirit, which is not you and I trying to emulate it. It is the power of the Spirit doing it through us. Pride, bang, will short circuit that. Why did James get to such position? Why did God do such amazing things? Why did he get chosen, be in, empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this amazing letter even to you and I 2,000 years later? Because he was a humble man and God flooded him with grace and fruit was born. And that's a whole nother key for you and I. I think that we can learn, but we're not even there uh, at that point. So, so this is what's going on. So James, 
when you understand, listen, who he was, what he was, okay, and the characteristic of this man. Now, let's get to the issue of the timing. Now, this is where it's really cool. I mean, I, know there's, I thought that rest was cool, but this is really cool, okay? Uh, most people believe that this book was written about the mid-40s, okay, is what's going on there. Uh, and this is because based on the context, uh, we can do some deduction. We can do some detective work. Uh, and there's some limiting factors that take place to get us down to this uh, uh, time frame. Uh, based on the, uh, the context there, we would say that this is clearly before the destruction of the Jewish temple, which we know when happened, 70 AD, by the Romans, because he doesn't talk about that. And that's a huge event. You think it would make it there. So that seems to be a limiting factor. So it's got to be before that. The second limiting factor is it appears to be before the Council of Jerusalem, which occurred around 50 AD. Okay, so now we're getting even further down. Uh, because that's when they were dealing with the Gentile issues. We saw James was there at that council, whatever. And uh, so that was in uh, the 50s uh, time frame there. And there's no mention of that, okay, uh, at all. And we'll get to that in a second, I think why. Um, and that's because how he addresses this verse. He doesn't talk about uh, the Gentile issue at all, okay? He says, the, he says who's, who, now who is he writing this to? He said specifically there, verse one, he says, to the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations, greetings. Right? So he introduces himself, okay? And he says, now who's, here's who I'm writing this to, okay? He is, uh, this is not speaking, it says 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He's not talking about the Jewish people per se, in, in essence, okay? You need to understand the timing of what's going on here. He is talking about the early church, okay? All born again Christians, but when you understand the early church before the Gentile issue, anybody who's not of a Jewish descent, who can get saved, okay? He's talking about the first early Christians who all the first early Christians were, guess what? Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. James, right in this, Jewish, the early church, the first people getting saved were Jewish people, okay? So that's what he's talking about here, the 12 tribes. It's not like, I'm just writing to the Jewish people. I'm writing to the early church and at this time was primarily made up of the Jewish people. Okay, and uh, later he talks about, Paul clearly talks about this inclusion of the Gentiles, which led to the uh, council. Galatians chapter three, there is neither Jew nor Greek, verse 28, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you're all one in Jesus Christ, okay? The gospel was open, and we know today, to anyone and everyone uh, to get saved, right? But the timing of this letter in the mid-40s Okay, this had not really occurred yet. And we're gonna to get to that in a second. This is why people say that this phrase to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations is speaking about, pay attention to the word there, scattered. He's speaking about the time that we know in church history that finally the church was in fact, the early church made up of primarily Jewish people was scattered because persecution finally came. They were in Jerusalem for quite some time. Okay, but they didn't do what Jesus said you need to do. And this is in Acts chapter one, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend uh, into heaven, he says, verse eight, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, listen, not just in Jerusalem. He says, in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. But what was the problem? They weren't going anywhere, primarily. They were stuck there in Jerusalem year after year, right? So what does God do? He does something wonderful, believe it or not. Okay, as we're gonna see one of the purposes of this, trials, what God's doing with trials, he does stuff good with them, okay? And that's why you can be joyful, 
even in the midst of trials, is he raises up persecution to cause the early church, as he would use James, the, the 12 tribes, the early Christians, scattered to do what you were supposed to do in the first place. You're not supposed to stick around your own camp, right? You need to get out there and propagate and share the gospel. It's not just for you. Get out there. Now, that's another thing that I'll preach. Churches, we can consider ourselves like a little Jerusalem, can't we? And we just like us four, no more. And these four square walls, you know, or whatever shape they're in. <laughs> I don't know, a triangular, what is it? A, a hypotenuse triangle? I don't know. I digress. Okay, but we do that same thing. We're supposed to go out and to the world. But sometimes we don't, right? And so sometimes what does Jesus do to get us motivated? Here comes the fire. Here comes the persecution. Cause you to scatter because you guys are supposed to be out there in the first place. I'm supposed to get out there in the first place. So you can do it voluntarily or God can motivate you. And that's what we see with this early church. To get them to do uh, what they're supposed to do. Now, now that's that why people would say this is the 40s, okay? Because there's no mention of the temple. This is prior to the Gentile issue. And he's mentioned of the scattering here. And James given time to become that early church leader throughout the 30s. And so they put you in about the 40 time frame and the scattering of the early church. Now, here's what's amazing. This would, this is the double aspect of the timing factor here. This would make this book the earliest book of the New Testament, right? And see, because that's another thing that's pretty wild. When you look through the New Testament, you assume it's in chronological order. No, it's not. They ordered it in different fashions. It starts with the four gospels. You know, there's nothing sneaky going on. It's just the way that they order stuff, okay? And they start off the four gospels. But the actual first chronological book, most people would say, is James. Now, when you understand that aspect of not just who he was, what he was of a, of a man, and this timing aspect, but specifically this timing aspect, that this is the first letter, listen, this is the first letter going out that we know of into the world. Now, I think you start to get closer to the purpose of this book. Okay, listen to this. This is cool. Uh, most people would say, some people would say that James is really not much of a, a book that has much of a theme. I disagree. Okay, uh, some people say, well, uh, you look at James and it seems like he's focusing on works and stuff like that. Uh, if you know anything about uh, Martin Luther and the Reformation, this was one book he did not like. Okay, and I, I think it's unfortunate because he didn't understand it. Because Martin Luther, if you understand his Reformation, breaking away from the Catholic Church, that was a system of works, which is not the gospel. Okay, and he tried and it was just a horrible existence. And it is a horrible existence when you think you got to work your way to heaven. Well, how do you know? What if you think it's a million works, but you get there, it's a million and one. Well, it's not of works. You'll never know. There is no peace, right? And a lot of the, the cults out there, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others that have a works-based salvation, which is not the gospel, uh, a lot of people, there's high instances of suicide and drug abuse and stuff because it drives you up a wall. You never have the peace of God because you don't have the peace of God because you're trying to get to heaven on your own and the scripture is very clear. You can't. It's only through the work of Jesus Christ. So he radically gets saved out of that from the book of Romans. And the book of Romans, he came across the verse that God used, poof, open his eyes wait a second the just shall live by faith and that was it that was the big turning point right for martin luther and he came out he was a former catholic uh, uh monk and, and, and things of that nature and he, he tried all this stuff that they said you're supposed to do and there is no peace but when he found that so now he comes to james and james does talks about a lot if you will of do's and don'ts and so we had a hard time with that but, uh, and so he, he didn't really like this book very much, to put it mildly. And so I think it's unfortunate because really Romans and James do not uh, contradict. They actually complement. They're saying the same thing from a different angle. Let me see if I can break it down. If Martin Luther would have come to this conclusion, I think he would have been perfectly fine with it. But basically uh, uh, what uh, Paul is saying in Romans is that we are 
uh, to live and we are made just by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. That's true. All James is saying, the test of that faith is whether or not it issues inappropriate behavior. That's all he's saying. James is just saying, you need to understand not everybody who says, I have faith, it's a saving faith. In other words, what James is saying is, listen, you can just sit there and say, I got faith, I got faith. Really? I'll show you my faith by what I do. He's not saying you're earning it. He says, when you have a true born again faith, the actual faith, the saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your life isn't perfect, but your life is changed. The test of a true faith is whether or not it issues inappropriate behavior. That's all he's saying. It is faith. It's always faith. James agrees with that, but he's revealing this, and I would say this is so applicable for today, especially with the church growth movement and all the apostasy that's going on in the church. Did you know that not everybody who professes to know Jesus Christ as their Savior really is saved? This gets to the purpose of this book, and I'm going, woo, this is exciting. Because what you're going to see is all these things that James begins to mention is an acid test. And he starts to give out this behavior of what you can and should expect from a true born-again Christian who has true saving faith, not dead faith. That's the purpose of this book. And I think that that really comes home, okay, uh, when you understand uh, the timing as aspect, okay? Uh, listen, this is written, oh, we gotta get there. <clears throat> this is written in the mid-40s. It was the first letter, by and large, that went out. Most people would agree. Now, think about why would James be putting out a letter <clears throat> that in essence is an acid test for true or fake Christians? One, because now they're put it to, with the timing of what he said here, to the scattered, right? right? So here it is, he's putting out this letter that exposes the true from the fake because the church is finally doing what it's supposed to do, going out into the world. Listen, the last thing you would want when the church finally gets out into the world to be a witness for Jesus is to give the world a false impression of what true Christianity is and what a real Christian is expected to be. So James is writing this book to stave off a horrible thing. And this is exactly, right, what you would expect the enemy to do, right? He couldn't stop Jesus and didn't stop Jesus from going to the cross. In fact, he thought he was winning, but it was his greatest undoing, okay? He couldn't stop the early church from being born, right? And he can't take away your salvation. So here's what he did knowing what's going on. Now, and then, if you will, if, I don't know if, he, if, if it's, I, I'm not gonna say thus saith the Lord, but did he have a hand in keeping the church from going out into the world? I don't know. And then God had to raise up persecution, this, whatever. But then he comes in, now the church is finally going out in the world and uh, he starts to try to weave in the wheat and the tares, the sheep and the goats in the church so when they get out, you got a false gospel going out, right? And that I think is really what uh, James uh, is doing. And so what we're gonna see, I'm just gonna get a little bit ahead of us. And what we're gonna see is James is going to go through all these various acid tests for true and fake Christianity. The first one we're gonna see, Lord willing, get into next week. We're gonna see trials is an acid test. If you walk away from Jesus Christ after going from a trial, the scripture is clear, you don't belong to Jesus Christ. I didn't say that God did. Now, it doesn't say we're not gonna have struggles in our trials, but God keeps his own. And First John chapter two gives us the answer. Hey, listen, they went out from us because they never belonged with us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed the what? The acid test, they didn't pass the test. They were fake. James goes through trials, <clears throat> your life, obedience, 
He goes to, do you pass the test of love? <clears throat> do you pass the test of true faith? Chapter two. Do you pass the test of your tongue? Ooh, that's a woman. Do you pass the test of submission? Do you pass the test of greed? Okay, and this testing is not something foreign in scripture. Uh, we see this, 2 Corinthians, turn there, chapter 13. 2 Corinthians, chapter 13. Do you find 1 Corinthians? What do you do? Yeah. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 <clears throat> and uh, verse 5 through 6 and Paul says this. He says this clearly. He says, listen, examine yourselves. Well, okay, I got a tie on and yeah, I got two socks and they look like they're sort of the same color. I'm good to go. No, he's talking about a much more deeper examination. Examine yourselves to see whether or not you're what? You're in the faith. In fact, he says what? You need to test yourself. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you, in you, unless, of course, you what? Fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed uh, the test. And so that's just one other passage. Paul talks about uh, failing the test. Uh, Jesus, and I would say in uh, Matthew 13, when he's talking about the parable of the sower, he talks about people who uh, start off with great joy, but they fall away and all this stuff in the rocky ground, whatever. And I think it's only the true one that bears fruit at the end. Okay, you're not saved by your works, but a true one will bear fruit. Something has to change. There's no, and that's what he says. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Don't you realize that when you become a true born again Christian, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, and it's absolutely impossible for you to stay the same. You can't. And if you sit there and say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but you don't give a rip about sin. I'm not saying perfect, but you don't give a rip about sin. You don't care about sharing the gospel. You have no desire to be a doulos of God. I'm sorry, the scripture would say you failed to take. And this is what James is saying. The very first book going out from the early church, finally getting out to the world, he says, oh, by the way, church, read this in your services because the last thing you want is for fake Christians going out there with the false gospel and giving the world a false impression of what Christianity is and what it constitutes for Christians. That's what the enemy does. James, I believe, writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to stave that off. Mickey had, uh, was over at his house last week, and he's a, a, a jeweler, if you don't know, and uh, by trade. And so we started talking about the acid test. He says, hey, you want to see one? So when he got out this little black stone-looking thing, and he got uh, three different things that were gold. They all look gold to me. And so he just did three rub tests. He rubbed one here, and he rubbed one there, and he rubbed another one there. And it says, he said, which one's not gold? I don't know. Looks all gold to me, right? And so then he took this uh, chemical solution stuff and just kind of made a line all the way through that, through those three. And sure enough, it didn't take long. All of a sudden, you saw the fake ones disappeared. The real one stayed clear as a bell. I'm telling you, that is such an appropriate analogy of what James is writing this book. He's writing all these different acid tests and he's saying, oh, all these people say that they're, they're followers of Jesus. They're all followers of Jesus. I mean, they, they, they say they're Jesus, you know, follow Christians. They say, we, we deal with that all the time, right? And so James says, watch this. I'm gonna put some acid test on this. Can I tell you something? Those who pass the test don't disappear. They stick to Jesus. I'm not saying your life is perfect as a Christian, but you don't walk away okay, is what he's talking about there. James isn't the only one that provides this acid test. We see this in the book of 1 John. This is amazing. Uh, he talks about in that, uh, that whole other book of the 1 John, uh, I believe is another book that has an acid test, okay, much later writing than James. And I think again, from the beginning toward more towards the end of the letters written in the uh, New Testament, it's still the same issue because the enemy is still at work with the wheat and the tares and the sheep and the goats is trying to infect the church and give a bad impression of Christianity, okay? And so John says this, he says, listen, he says, if I, a person states, 
in chapter one, he says, if I state that I have fellowship with him and yet you walk in darkness, he says, you lie and you don't practice the truth. You're not a Christian. He says, if I say I have no sin, he says he deceives himself and the truth is not in him. If he says, if a person says, oh, I have not sinned, he is a liar and the word of God is not in him. If he says in chapter two, he says, oh, I know him, I belong to Jesus and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. James says, oh, I, uh, a person comes up to you, I abide in Jesus. He says, then you ought himself to walk as he walked, right? He says, oh, I'm in the light. But if you hate your brother, you're in darkness. And then he says this, he says, oh, I love God. Don't you love God? I love God. But you hate your brother, you're a liar, right? So we see not only with Paul's writing, not only with Jesus and the gospel, we see even in the apostle John and first John, I believe that book is primarily almost all uh, an acid test as well. So it is with James. This is not a foreign concept that James is doing here, providing an acid test. Again, understand the purpose of the evil one. He could not stop uh, 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 the gospel coming forth, that Jesus going to the cross, rising from the grave, Jew, Gentile, anybody now on the planet can be made right with God, have peace with God. He can't stop that. He can't take it away. So he starts worming his way into the church with a bunch of phonies to hopefully propagate a wrong gospel, okay, uh, and to infect uh, the church, okay? And this is what James is saying here. Uh, let's, let's, man, we're getting pretty close. Uh, uh, one commentator, he said this. He said, uh, uh, an intellectual, perfunctory, ritualistic, external religiosity without the evidence of a transformed lifestyle, frankly, is an abomination to God and very common. I'll read that again. This is wild. An intellectual, perfunctory, ritualistic, external religiosity without the evidence of a transformed lifestyle, frankly, is an abomination to God and very common. How could the church today, after we have the benefit of these letters, not just James, but other letters, even the gospels with Jesus and Paul, over and over and over saying, test yourself, examine yourself, do you pass the test? And they're putting this all over the church. It's not just one letter, it's many letters. Why is it that the church today is in apostasy? Why is it that there's so many wheat and tares and sheep and goats? Nobody's preaching the word of God. Nobody is presenting before people, have you passed the test? Are you really a Christian? Right? Because what's coming from the pulpit today? Learn to be a better you, Bobby. Bobby. Right? You got to speak British. And somehow that's spiritual. Right? Yeah, it's all about you. Learn how to be financially successful. You know? Let's build up your self-esteem, shall we? You know, you can have high self-esteem and end up straight into hell. What good that do you? Okay? People are missing uh, the point. Okay? Let's continue on. Uh, uh, Paul. This is what I think what's amazing with Paul and his example is Paul didn't just go through trials. Paul passed the test. Now, let me give you an actual case scenario. And I didn't get this until after I got saved. And even much after I got saved, when I began to realize that the scripture is very clear about fake uh, Christians and real Christians. And that there are such a thing as people who go to church services, but who are not born again. Did you realize that? Most people don't realize that. Okay, now that explains a lot, right? It doesn't condone the behavior, 
But that could explain why very well you went to that church and you sat down in that pew and somebody gave you the evil eye and 5,000 daggers because you sat in their pew, right? Or they looked at you cross-eyed because you cut in line at the potluck and all this really crazy stuff, right? Or literally just got and said something on purpose nasty to you. Unfortunately, Christians can do that. I'm not condoning that. But listen, the church is so flooded, man, with fake Christians. That explains a lot, doesn't it? One guy before I got saved, his name was Sean. This was the guy who introduced me into uh, the satanic Bible, uh, got me going down with the road, the occult, and things of that nature. And I remember back in the day, Sean actually said to me at this state of his life, he says, oh yeah, because we hated Christianity. You know, part of it was the hypocrisy that I saw growing up in high school. The same guys who were doing the same sinful, rotten things as me, if they weren't too hungover, they go where on Sundays? Church services. Okay, uh, never told me about Jesus, whatever. And so I'm going, that's Christianity. Uh, you don't need it because the world doesn't know. The world doesn't know you need to pass the test, the acid test, right? Uh, they just claimed they were Christians. I didn't know. And so it gave me a bad taste of Christianity. And so I woke up to spiritual things. I wasn't going down that route. So here's Sean and I ripping on Christianity. And he'd tell me this story. He says, oh, I was a, I was a Christian for over a whole year. No, you weren't. The scripture says you weren't because you walked away. Here's what he did. He says, and I was, I went to all the church services. I was studying the Bible. I was, you know, a part of this and what have you. And I was right up there and I was cleaning up my act and all this stuff. And I, I and my brother came down, I think we came out of cancer or something like that. And I began to pray for my brother. And, and he says, and, and after all that time, uh, my brother died and I got mad at God and I walked away with extreme anger because this is the same guy who not only turned me on to the satanic bible but i remember up at his place up in the mountains uh, in a cabin there he would still have some christian paraphernalia you know pictures of jesus and you know uh, uh the, the footsteps you know poem and stuff like that and we used to take uh <clears throat> shotguns and rifles and purposely shoot jesus in the head and just stuff like that and just it was like today was just me but it's just <laughs> you know that kind of my what can i tell you something Sean didn't pass the test. You know what his test was? Here comes a trial. This is the first thing that James says. This is, we're not there yet. That Lord will is next week. Sean had a trial come across so that God could reveal, are you true or are you fake? Which is a good thing, right? Don't you want to know if you're real or not? Because what's the ramifications? You're going to hell. You're going to a church service, all right, but you're actually headed straight to hell. Okay, so out of love, I'm going to send a test. The first one is a trial. And if you pass the test, you're a true Christian. If you walk away, you're fake. And I think Sean was a prime example of that. Now, let me give you a true example of a Christian. Reread this, but do we realize that uh, this is what's going on? Open your Bibles real quick, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, let's take a look at Paul. Because we all know that the apostle Paul uh, had just a, a cakewalk life. You know what I'm saying? It was just so easy. Everybody loved him. And it was just a wonderful journey. And uh, it, it was just awesome. You know what I'm saying? It was just, yeah, whatever. I digress as you turn there. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22 through 28. Let's talk about what Paul went through. Okay, now, first of all, Paul is defending his apostleship. Uh, people said, who in the world do you think you are? Who makes you the big shot? Who makes you the leader? Who do you think you are? Who are you to tell us what to do? Who are you? Who are you? Blah, 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 right? And so he's just like, listen, okay, I hate even doing this, but give me a break. Uh, I, I think I passed the test. Okay, and this is what he says there. Uh, and he talks about uh, what he goes through uh, in verse 22. He says this, he says, man, he says, uh, uh, are they Hebrews? You know, because they were listening to other people, but they didn't want to listen to Paul. Who do you think you are? Right? He said, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. 
Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more, I've worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was sown. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers and in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger of the country, in danger of the sea, in danger from what? False brothers. Uh, I, I've labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I, I have known hunger and thirst and I'm often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I got the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak and I don't feel weak. And he says, oh, I, and Paul sits there and he says, why? You can sit here and rip on me all you want. You can question me all we want. But I think if you take a look at what I've been through by the grace of God, the spirit of God, it is tantamount that I passed the test. I'm a Christian. And this is what God's called me to do. Now again, Sean, he just had the one thing. What does a true, true Christian do? You persevere, you don't give up, you don't turn away, you don't back off, and you don't run from Christ. Why? Because God keeps his own. And he gives us the grace to endure. And, we're getting, and that, that's all in the next verse. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. But I wanted to give you a, 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 a clear example of somebody who goes to a church service and once the acid test is applied, they reveal the truth. Okay, it would have been fortunate if Sean would have turned to Christ and maybe he has today, I don't know. If he's still alive, I don't know. Okay, for sure. And, uh, but uh, uh, I hope he is. Uh, but, uh, but Paul, he clearly went through it and he passed the test, okay? And, uh, and this is what we're going to see, okay? And again, the first test that we're gonna see if you pass the test, uh, Lord willing, next week is do you pass the acid test of trials? Now remember the visual with, uh, uh, with uh, Mickey's example, okay? This is your first test trial. And if you're a true Christian, okay, you're going to pass the test. You are going to stay there. You're not gonna turn from Christ uh, in the trial, okay? And this is why I think that Paul, when he goes to the trials, he doesn't give up on God's trials. In fact, Paul throughout his life, it never stopped going through trials. And yet here's what he says. Listen, even when his head was about to be chopped off towards the end of his life, Paul makes this amazing statement in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Listen, not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. Can I translate that for you? To all true born again Christians. There are times when you're going to have to fight the good fight. There are times when it's, man, am I even going to finish it? But you're going to finish it by the spirit of God. There are times like, man, I'm holding on to the faith. And Jesus said, you're a true Christian. Guess what? I'm going to reward you with the crown of righteousness. You're going to make it, okay? You pass the test, okay? And, uh, and then Paul says that if you're going to do it, uh, you're going to do it with joy. We'll get into that uh, is issue. And I think that, that what we see with Paul's example and certainly with James is on the flip side, not just as a warning to the non-Christian, hey, do, are, you, are you real? Are you making it past the test? But I think what we see also is an encouragement to you and I as Christians to persevere, to not quit, to keep going, to fight the good fight. It's all worth it all. Keep your eyes on the prize, okay? And be glad that through all this, it's showing evidence of your true born again state. You passed the test. Ultimately, we're headed to heaven. So it's a good thing for us. But it's a cleansing thing for the church. Because the church is flooded with phony baloney believers. And they're in positions of authority and power dictating the church i get i've said this so many times before i get phone calls i get emails uh literally every week from all over the country 
and some are out of the country, and it's the same question, the same problem. Pastor Billy, I can't find a good, healthy church. Uh, it's just nobody wants to preach the truth. Uh, it's all just a bunch of fluff or false doctrine. And it's not just, well, I'll go down the road. It's nothing. They literally, it's gotten so bad, they don't even have an option in the whole town they live in. That's how bad it's gotten. Why? How could this happen to the church? Because people are getting away from the Bible. They might preach a portion of it, but not all of it. And they certainly don't want to preach a book on James or 1 John or go through the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, or talk about Paul in, in Corinthians when he says, do you pass the test? Are you really a born-again Christian? If the Spirit of God doesn't live in you, you don't belong to Christ. Don't bring up those passages. And so what that is, is it's encouraging all this to continue, and it's continuing so long that now the table uh, have tipped. The scales are now in favor of the non-Christian being in charge of the church versus the Christian. But again, we shouldn't be surprised if you read the Bible. The Bible says that's what's gonna happen in the last days. Okay, let me close with this statement. One, one guy says, he says, one of the first, one of the foremost, uh, if not the foremost strategy of Satan in the world is to counterfeit salvation and to produce non-saving faith. He says, please know that. He says, around the world, all of the false religions spawned by the enemy are designed to give people a false sense of security in religion. And so he wants to produce non-saving religion, religion that damns people to eternal hell. And within the true religion, Christianity, he fights that by producing non-saving faith, people who believe themselves to be redeemed, but who are not, who are living under the most, listening, frightening delusion imaginable. Satan's ploy is to attempt to make people think that they're right with God when they are not. And then he makes this statement. He says, I don't believe that Satan primarily wants people to hate God and to run from God, though there are people that do. Listen, he says, Satan wants people to come to the wrong God in the wrong way and feel secure when they shouldn't. Ooh. He said he wants them to think that they have solved the issue of religion. They have solved the issue of faith. Their destiny is secure when in fact it's not. And there will be among those who say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and cast out demons and done many wonderful works? And then he will profess to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Satan wants to make people comfortable and secure with non-saving faith. He wants them to believe they're on their way to heaven when they're on their way to hell. And so this epistle, James, is written to give the church, listen, a manual of tests by which the church can identify people in the congregation who are in error and have erred from the truth and turn them around to saving faith. Listen, it's not just about exposing the true from the false for the church's benefit, which is good but it's to approach these people in love and say, man, please, you gotta get saved. You gotta get saved to turn them away from that error. He said, that's the intent. I thought about this. I thought, isn't it wild how we'll witness to Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and our heart goes out to them, especially with them. It's not like a pagan on the street who doesn't know better per se, whatever. But these guys actually think uh, that they know the truth. And they're, they're behind their stained glass windows and they're behind all the, the trappings and they would even give the air to the lost, uh, to the world that they're Christians when they're not. But, but they think they have the right way. And we'll witness to them. Our heart goes out to them. But what James is saying, listen, is sometimes you need to witness to the people in your own church. Because they're doing the same thing. They're trusting in religion. They're trusting in works. They're failing the test. Nobody's loved them enough to say, do you pass the test? Right? And I uh, wish we had time to get into that issue. Hey, you can't judge. Okay, we've dealt with that in the final countdown. Okay, so how are we doing uh, with our 
test. James is going to see. We're going to see, Lord willing, next week. The first one, again, is trials. And it's not just do you make it through the trial or you continue to persevere in the trial. But listen, are you going through your trial with joy? And I think there's some reasons why, believe it or not, even as hard as things get, that you can still have joy in the midst of the pain. And part of it is because we're going to see that God doesn't uh, let anything go to waste. Even our trials, even our difficulties, he means for our good. And when you realize that there's good and purpose and value, even in the midst of your pain, yay, that gives you joy. In fact, the Greek says, it's really, we'll get to that again, Lord will next week. It says continual joy, nonstop joy. Because you're so solidified in the fact that this is something that's gonna be awesome. I can't wait. It's awesome. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. That nobody can slap that smile off your face even in the midst of the fire. That's good, isn't it? Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing. 
in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.